Um, and uh, it's, this is this is the um, the place where you get hyperlactatemia because of adrenaline infusions. You know, we we often see it in a, yeah. in a critical care setting where you do an adrenaline infusion. You watch the lactate go up, and in fact, the patient could be getting better in front of your eyes from a hemodynamic point of view, and you're definitely improving their oxygen delivery to tissues, but the lactate's going up. Yeah, and, and that's it, just the sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, it's beta two activation and um, and activation of the glycolysis. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, this week we've got um, two other people with me. I've got um, Tim Marmion, who's a, one of the junior registrars working with us at King Edward, who kindly agreed to give us a talk on um, the challenges in lactate interpretation a few days ago, which was really um, a really interesting talk. So I've cornered Tim and got him to come along and uh, go over it again for us here on the podcast. Thanks, Tim. No, it's a pleasure to be here. And the other person along today is Declan Sharp, who's um, Declan's taken over from Civ. He's the new education fellow, so he's got some big boots to fill. Civ, if you're listening, <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's the chief fellow as well, Roger. <laughs> Look right. out! <laughs> and so he's come along as well. Uh, I'm, I'm teaching him how to how to use all the recording equipment. He's going to uh, um, Declan and I are going to quiz Tim and we'll just um, talk to him about this uh, really interesting subject. Very good. Looking forward to it. Um, so, do you want to tell us? Uh, we're going to sort of like um, approximately follow your your talk that you gave the other day, but yeah, obviously no use slides, and so that's a bit doesn't completely translate into a um, an auditory um, forum. Um, but we'll try and sort of ask questions and things as we go along. How's sounds that sound? good. Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. Uh, do you want to tell us how you got interested in this sub- subject or uh, how, how you ended up giving a talk to us about it? Yeah, sure. So um, I've recently come from an ICU setting and uh, we had a very interesting patient that I'll briefly describe at the start of this podcast. And um, and it also came from an experience where I heard about lactate being used as a as a, almost like a diagnostic tool for sepsis and, yep. I, and I felt that that didn't really correlate with what I understood it, um, as what it's useful for and uh, so I kind of dug a little bit deeper and that's where I ended up with with this talk okay so um so we'll talk a little bit about the case and then I might do a bit of biochemistry which is a bit frightening but um, yep. yeah just a little bit of basic biochemistry about lactate and um, and then also introduce a concept that um, was was designed by a guy called Cliff Reed, who many listeners might know, um, called the lactate map. And then we're going to use that lactate map to describe an obstetric case and um, and to analyse about what's causing hyperlactatemia in an obstetric case. And we'll talk a little bit about sepsis screening in the parturient as well. Okay, sounds good. All right. So, um, so this patient that I saw in an ICU setting, um, he came into a hospital um, with uh, with about twelve months of progressive um, depression, weight loss, poor appetite um, that got acutely worse over a period of about a week. Um, he he had been to work on the day of his admission, so he was you know functioning quite well, um, but was went home unwell, just feeling generally worse as what, what he had been over the past week. Um, he, his wife called the ambulance and he, um, they found that his BSL was 1.9 and that he had some ketones but with no history of diabetes. 
Okay, so that's unusual, isn't it? Low sugars and high ketones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd had a background of a cancer uh, in the past that we didn't really know that much about, but he'd had previously had some cancer and had some treatment. Um, and he'd also uh, been depressed for over about a year, but otherwise was fairly well with no significant medical problems. Um, his only other uh, point of interest was that he'd only recently developed acne in his middle ages, um, uh, and uh, this was you know, quite unusual for him. He'd uh, also been using some minocycline cream uh, for his acne, but um, yeah, but no okay. other medications at all. Yep. <coughs> um, he was a non-smoker, um, and at the time he told us that he just had some, uh, you know, four or five alcoholic drinks three or four times a week, um, and no uh, no illegal drug use at all. So when I saw him, he was um, sitting up in bed. Uh, he was talking he had a slightly increased respiratory rate but um, he didn't have any like dyspnea per se normal sats and equal air entry um, he wasn't shocked you know his heart rate was in a sinus tachycardia at about 100 blood pressure of about 120 on 70 he was warm he was not requiring any um, presses um, his GCS was 15 no focal neurology and that BSL had come up to about 12 and a half with some oral glucose yeah and and um, on examination of his abdomen, he had a palpable liver, liver edge, but, um, but no peripheral stigmata of significant liver disease um, and looked a bit dry. And the reason why I was asked to see him in the first place is he'd had a, a venous blood gas done in ED that showed a lactate of greater than 30. Okay. So, yeah, so he was... What was the pH? So he's profoundly acidotic. It's uh, 6.94 um, yep. with a CO2 of 15 as a compensation. Yep. And his bicarb was three. So it's really so basically he's really acidotic from uh, lactate lactic acidosis and he was hyperventilating. Did he look like he was short of breath? No, he didn't look that short of breath. But was he like breathing deeply or yeah, like yeah, Chris Miles sort of a yeah. Half, yep. Yeah, you could definitely tell his like if you could me- measure his minute ventilation it would have been very high, I'm sure. Okay. Um, but uh, and uh, hemoglobin of hundred and sixteen. But yeah, profound acidosis. Have you ever seen any numbers like that, Declan? I think a lactate more than 30 would be worrying for pretty much anyone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Years ago when I was working in ICU, we had a patient who had mitochondrial dysfunction there and she had a like a pH of 6.8 and I think she, I think it was a lactic acidosis as well the mitochondria weren't working. Yeah. So um, we did a, you know, the usual investigations. He had a chest X-ray, which was essentially normal. Um, and his initial bloods came back. He had a, a macrocytic anemia with a hemoglobin of 111 and a mean cell volume of 114. Uh, he had um, an INR of 1.3, but a slightly prolonged APTT. Yep. Um, but he had some very deranged liver function tests with um, a bilirubin of 60, an ALT of 220, AST of 840, um, an ALP of 191, and a GGT of 1300. Okay. So, yeah, so severely deranged LFTs, but he wasn't um, in acute liver failure per se because he's non-coagulopathic and he's GCS15, so not encephalopathic either. So I guess um, the interesting point here is that the numbers, the biochemistry suggests you've got someone who's profoundly shocked, you know, who's really acidotic, um, uh, but the clinical presentation was not that. Um, and uh, and and thinking about lactate as kind of a signal of hypoperfusion or um, anaerobic respiration, the clinical presentation didn't suggest any hypoperfusion anyway, uh, anywhere, and certainly yeah. not 
anaerobic respiration. Mm. Um, so obviously there's something else that's causing his high lactate. And, um, and yeah, we'll, we'll use this lactate map to kind of work out where that's coming from. Mm. Yep. It's the sort of thing you would imagine someone may be in cardiac arrest to yeah. produce a lactate that yeah, that's right. Yeah, so totally. everyone think I think the the simple sort of thinking about lactate is that you know, when the cells don't have any oxygen, they have to make lactate to stay alive, and, and then you get really like acidotic. And but obviously, as you as you're about to teach us, yeah, um, <laughs> it's much more nuanced than that. It's, it's yeah, a lot definitely. More it's still always more complex than you think. Isn't yeah, it? for sure. <laughs> and like anything in, especially anything in biology, you know, it's rarely it's rarely one way or the other. There's always an equilibrium that exists. Yep. Um, okay. So um, this man had a CT scan of his abdomen because, um, you know, quite rightly people were concerned about ischemic gut with this very high lactate. Um, luckily there was no ischemic gut, but there was a, quite a large um, uh, liver that we felt on examination and was in keeping with some form of acute hepatitis. So um, his other investigations came back and his serum paracetamol was normal, salicylate level was normal, um, uh, he had uh, a very raised ferritin, but in keeping with some kind of acute phase response. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, his treatment in ICU consisted of some dialysis and, and some other supportive measures, um, but we, we didn't need to institute any kind of hemodynamic support for him. And luckily, over the next 12 hours, um, uh, he his biochemistry really improved. So, it, you know, he went from a pH of just a, or un, uh, under 7 um, which normalised to 7.4 over the course of about 12 hours, and um, and his you know CO2 as a compensation came up to almost within normal range. Yeah, and what happened to his lactate? So it went down from greater than 30, so unmeasurable. Yep. Um, the first measurable <coughs> number we had was uh, an hour or so later at 25, and then it was down to 4.6 by the time yeah. you know 12 hours later. It's quite amazing, really, to watch it. And he had some sugar and some thiamine and some bicarb and dialysis. Yeah, yep. yeah. I don't think we gave any bicarb, actually. We just used the filter to correct his acidosis. Oh, okay. yeah. oh sorry, he did I have didn't, some bicarb. Didn't he need to? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was also given some NAC, um, which um, there's some interesting evidence about NAC for non-paracetamol-related liver failure. Um, yep. Uh, yeah, but um, that's a, probably a whole other topic, I think. That's just sort of covering all bases for someone with a unknown cause of liver dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, sounds reasonable. So, um, so Roger, maybe we'll just go back and talk a little bit about the kind of basic science of um, of lactate, and and it yep. all comes back to those first year of medical school where we're learning about anaerobic and uh, aerobic respiration. Yep. And I think the two main processes to talk about here is glycolysis as one process, and then about the citric acid cycle or Krebs cycle as another. And, um, and glycolysis happens in the cytoplasm and essentially it produces a small amount of ATP, which is, you know, this fundamental energy molecule that our cells yep. use. Um, and, uh, and so it, you take glucose and um, it goes through a series of intermediates um, and is turned into pyruvate. And then this pyruvate can either be shunted into the um, mitochondria and uh, produce more ATP, you know, somewhere between 32 and 38, and it's usually it's 36. <laughs> Although that needs oxygen, doesn't it? It does need oxygen, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. So, um, and uh, and if an oxygen's not available, then the pyruvate gets um, turned into lactate. Now, the point of this is because there's another molecule called NAD+, and um, during glycolysis, that NAD+, gets converted into NADH, 
Yep. And um, if there's no oxygen available, we want to regenerate that NAD plus so we can continue glycolysis and make some some additional ATP even in the absence of oxygen. Yeah. So um, in order to regenerate that NAD plus, um, the pyruvates turn into lactate and that produces NAD plus. So it's sort of like um, in the situation where a cell is not getting any oxygen for whatever reason, if you're not, the patient's not breathing or the blood the blood's not flowing towards it uh, around it. This is like a survival mechanism where it can make enough ATP to try and stay alive. Yeah, exactly. By turning its glucose stores into lactate yeah. and making some ATP. Yeah, and in fact, there's some cells that don't have mitochondria in our body and they yeah. can only produce ATP in this manner. It's like red cells and things like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but like I said before, you know, it's all about equilibrium. So rarely is a cell completely devoid of oxygen or um, and, and some... Um, and actually, the the way that a cell regenerates this NAD+, plus, even in the presence of oxygen, is that it can shunt this NADH into the Krebs cycle through these OxFos shuttles, and um, and that actually regenerates the NAD+, plus even when there's oxygen there. Yeah, so unfortunately, even though it would be nice if lactate would be a marker of like cells not getting enough oxygen, there's plenty of other times when cells make lactate. And there's plenty of oxygen around. Isn't yeah, that? yeah, exactly. You get onto right. that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that guy—that patient is a prime example of that, where that you know there was no anaerobic respiration yeah. per se going on, um, and there was—he um, was certainly perfused. You know, he was warm. Yep. He had great blood pressure. He was not on any presses, and um, and yeah, he was still producing a lot of lactate, or maybe not clearing a lot of lactate. Mm. Yep. So. Um, <coughs> Did you want to talk about that biochemistry anymore, or are you happy with that? I don't that? know. I think, that's, I think that's well explained. Is there any resources out on there uh, yeah, that you can recommend for people who want to understand that more if they haven't done biochemistry before? Or don't? Yeah, none that you I know could, any, I mean, there I is... I presume um, there'd be something on YouTube. Yeah, you I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. The, um, the, you can go as deep as you like, I guess, with yeah, these yeah. topics, can't you? Pick yeah. up any textbook on physiology. Yeah, it should be the first chapter, mm-hmm. shouldn't it? Yeah, it's really fundamental stuff. Um, no one reads books anymore. <laughs> <laughs> My kids don't anyway. Log onto the library website, you'll find an ebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, like I was saying, uh, sometimes you know um, you can think of lactate as lactic acid or the lactate iron, and this gets confused sometimes. So you think, oh, what is it? What actually is this lactate thing? And it's the it's the ion is the conjugate base of lactic acid. Um, and lactic acid is a strong iron with a pKa of 4, which means in physiological pH it's completely dissociated and exists as the lactate ion on its own. Yep. Um, so as a side point, that's confusing. I think people get confused with things like Hartman's or Ringer's lactate, mm. and they think that it's like an acidic solution, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Because it's got that word lactate, and everyone thinks lactate is uh, acidosis. Yeah. yeah but, it's, but it's not, is it? It's actually the opposite. It's the, it's the um, conjugate base. Correct, yeah. yeah. And um, and like we were saying before, there's some um, some cells that produce lactate normally, and actually um, a human produces about 20 millimoles per kilo per day of lactate just in normal physiology. Yep. Um, it's metabolized primarily by the liver, and the liver converts lactate as a substrate um, for gluconeogenesis and actually produces glucose um, from lactate uh, in a process known as the Cori cycle. Um, there is some renal metabolism that goes on as well because we know that kidneys are also a place for gluconeogenesis. So both hepatic and um, renally metabolised rather than excreted per se. You know, it's actually utilised there. Hmm. 
Am I right in saying the lactate that's metabolized in the liver is regenerates some bicarbonate as well? Oh, yeah, that's is that right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, from the lactate and CSL is a source of bicarbonate. Yeah. Yep. And and another reason why it's definitely not acidic, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, so traditionally, we thought about lactate as kind of type A and type B, um, lactic acidosis, and uh, and this classification system has been around for a while since the mid eighties. And um, type A was thought of kind of as that pure uh, failure of the circulation, you know, like a, yep. a real shock, you know, shocked state where the circulation is mm. failing to deliver oxygen to the tissues, and then lactate is produced as a result. And then type B um, is when there is normal circulation, but either overproduction of lactate or failure to remove lactate, that kind of classic clearance versus production uh, yep. equilibrium. Um, and then to type B can be split down further into kind of uh, disease states such as malignancy. Um, uh, typically, cancer cells will, try, will produce more um, ATP via glycolysis and subsequently more lactate. Um, uh, drugs, kind of metformin, salicylates, paracetamol, toxic alcohols, all the things that can produce um, high lactate. And then inborn errors of metabolism, like you mentioned earlier, Roger, with um, uh, any, anything where the mitochondria is failing to do what it needs to do can produce lactate. Uh, and so things like you know, really strenuous sort of um, exos- anaerobic exercise fit into that as well, type B. Yeah, it would be a type B because yeah. the, the circulation is clearance, basically, isn't it? But yeah. That usually gets cleared really fast, so you have to be quick. You have to do your blood gas yeah, very yeah, quickly yeah. if you want to catch it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess this um, list helps some people. You know, they they allow you to kind of think about things broadly. But I kind of struggle with lists. Actually, I often think that I remember that some of the list, and there's always like one or two things on the list that I can't recall when I'm um, put under pressure. And um, so I like to rely on kind of more conceptual frameworks to help me remember things. And, um, and as I mentioned earlier, Cliff Reed came up with this brilliant um, lactate map and um, it's on his Resus Me website and he does a really, really lovely 10-minute little um, video on there where this thing's described really beautifully. So I definitely encourage people to have a look at that um, if they're listening to this podcast um, because I've got the picture in front of me, which obviously doesn't help that well with the podcast, but um, uh, it's essentially a circular type process where it tracks the normal physiology of lactate production and clearance and conversion to sugar, to glucose. And, um, and at any point on that circle, um, you can have dysfunction and that would lead to hyperlactatemia. And it uh, allows a bit of a conceptual kind of framework to, to hang a diagnosis yeah. on. So there are, um, I guess, there are a number of points on this on this cycle where you can have dysfunction. Uh, you can either accelerate glycolysis, um, so you can make too much pyruvate, and 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 the enzyme that's responsible for converting pyruvate to acetyl CoA that, that can go into the Krebs cycle is called pyruvate dehydrogenase, um, which is a thiamine dependent enzyme. And if you over, it's only, like every enzyme's only got certain capacity to um to convert the pyruvate, and if you overwhelm that enzyme. Um, then you produce lactate as a result because it yep. can't convert it into acetyl-CoA. So presumably if you've got thiamine deficiency, then, then you, this will also make this worse. Yeah, and I don't know how, how deficient you have to be, yeah. Um, but so, yeah. So that's, that would be like that. Traditionally, that's alcoholics, but you can see it in anyone who's malnourished, can't you? like even hyperemesis or um, eating disorders and things. Is that yeah, right? yep. that's a good point. 
Um, and uh, it's, this is this is the um, the place where you get hyperlactatemia because of adrenaline infusions. You know, we we often see it in a, yeah. nice, in a critical care setting where you do an adrenaline infusion, you watch the lactate go up, and in fact, the patient could be getting better in front of your eyes from a hemodynamic point of view, and you're definitely improving their oxygen delivery to tissues, but the lactate's going up. Yeah, and, and that's, that's just the sympathetic. Yeah, 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 it's beta two activation and um, and activation of the glycolysis. Um, now you can also have uh, decreased clearance of lactate. So if um, if there's hepatic dysfunction, like in the case that I described earlier, um, then you get uh, a failure of conversion of lactate to glucose or clearance of um, lactate to glucose, and um, and uh, this is both hepatically and renally um, uh, cleared as as we talked about. So um, so failure of any of those two organs can cause an increase in lactate also. And if there's a mitochondrial um, uh, condition, you know, like yeah. an inborn error of metabolism, um, that's, uh, yeah, the reason for an elevated lactate in those scenarios. Um, but the, I think the, the really important thing here is when we're talking about uh, lactate in sepsis is it's not any one of these particular things that's causing the um, elevated lactate. And there's, there's probably a reasonable contribution from m- many factors, um, especially your in, like endogenous catecholamines, your intrinsic um, increase in your sympathetic nervous response in, in response to, um, to a septic kind of uh, insult yeah. um, certainly is one of the main drivers of the high lactate and sepsis. Yeah, so you're just making more lactate, but it's not because your tissues are necessarily badly perfused. Yeah, exactly. Although that can happen in sepsis, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And if you've got like that septic patient who's cold peripherally and mottled and hypotensive and tachycardic, you know, I agree that yeah, this is probably hypoperfusion and anaerobic respiration that's going on. But um, it's not always the case, especially early on in the disease or in mild, um, mm. mild um, sepsis. The um, the yeah, and and or, or if in severe disease where you get um, ischemic hepatitis from you know from a septic yep. shock, then certainly that would impair your ability to clear lactate. Yeah, that's true. So um, when we had this patient in ICU, I was trying to utilize this kind of concept map to to pin down what is causing his high lactate level and. And this patient had a number of reasons why they could have high lactate. You know, obviously he, there was the hepatic dysfunction that impaired his ability to clear lactate, but there was also this um, history of cancer in the background, and we thought perhaps there was a recurrence of this cancer leading to uh, accelerated glycolysis mm-hmm. that could account for some of them. Perhaps um, this patient had low thiamine, or perhaps there was a defect of the pyruvate dehydrogenase. Um, or that there was a new, there was a you know a triggering event that caused um, mitochondrial dysfunction in someone who was susceptible but didn't have you know an inborn error of metabolism per se. Some drugs can poison your mitochondria too, can't they? Yeah. So yep. so we um, uh, after a bit of googling, we we learnt that minocycline was um, you know a drug that we're not obviously obviously using very frequently, but um, minocycline certainly a drug that affects your mitochondria. Mitochondria used to be bacteria four billion years ago, didn't they? Or? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know actually. I'm making that up now. Human yeah. beings' oldest friends, aren't they? <laughs> I knew there was a reason you mentioned the minocycline earlier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very strategic. It had to be in there. Yeah. Um, luckily for this patient, he, you know, he got better. Um, yeah, he got much better, and um, 
his um, liver function improved and with the help of dialysis he cleared that lactate and his acidosis um, resolved and uh, he didn't go into a four-minute liver, liver failure, which is great, um, and went home, yeah, which is yep. what, we're, we're, what we're all here to do. Um, but this is obviously a... Um, uh, obstetric and gynaecology care podcast, Roger. Yep. So we probably should talk about a, an obstetric patient, really, shouldn't we? Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. All right. So, um, so yeah, let's talk about an, an obstetric patient. So let's say this woman's 32. Um, she's a paranoid, and she's come in um, at 36 and 5 or 40 um, from a remote town in Western Australia with um, difficult-to-manage gestational diabetes. Or let's yep. say she's type 2 diabetic that's converted onto insulin during pregnancy. Um, that she's taking some uh, insulin, say 30 units of protophane at night, and then um, 10, 10, and 10 at meal times of Novorapid. She's on some slow-release nifedipine for pre-existing hypertension and um, and... Uh, has some CKD in the background with a previous nephrectomy um, for a, you know, yep. an atrophic kidney that kept getting infected. Um, she's GBS negative and uh, she came in uh, with some decreased fetal movements, um, was found to have an intrauterine growth restriction and subsequently was induced um, at around the 37-week yep. mark. Um, we, had a, we placed an epidural that was only partially effective, um, but uh, the patient declined reciting of that epidural. Mm-hmm. A long labour and then failure to progress kind of uh, at six or seven centimetres and ended up with a CAT2 section. Uh, we gave her a CSE um, and uh, delivered the baby in good health, um, but there was a postpartum hemorrhage of a litre. Okay. Sounds, so, sounds like standard day at Kingwood. Yeah, it sounds pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty common, hey? Um, and what if we got called to pack you to see her um, because of the phenylephrine was a bit slow to wean, still on kind of 10 to 15 mils an hour with systolic blood pressure in the low 90s, heart rate in the low 100s and a low grade temperature of 37.7. But she looked well, she had warm peripheries um, and was there feeding her baby. And I guess um, it would be pretty common to send off a venous blood gas at this point. Um, and maybe some other bloods, and, and say we had a lactate come back at 3.1. What would you think about that, Declan? Mm. It's a pretty broad range of differentials here, aren't there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. And there's lots of reasons why that, um, that you know, she could have that lactate of 3.1. Mm. But I guess um, we can utilise this concept map um, to, to really give a nice broad reason for, um, and for her high lactate. Um, perhaps it was that long labour, some pain from the sympathetic nervous response and um, compensation for her postpartum hemorrhage that lead to endogenous catecholamine release and increasing glycolysis and therefore lactate production. That could be yeah, yep. could mm-hmm. be a reason. In fact, I would probably argue that that's like the number one reason. You know, yep. Some of the highest lactates I've seen in recovery have been in patients who have been quite shocked during a hemorrhage. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then you resuscitate them and yep. it gets better. Um, or perhaps the nephrectomy um, led to a reduced capacity for renal metabolism of that lactate and reduced clearance. So, so even though um, the lactate might have been like normal physiology, you know, her inability to clear that lactate might have led to an increased level. Um, perhaps she had an unknown mitochondrial disorder. You know, this yes, is it's may- possible. Yeah, this might be the first lactate that's ever been sent on the patient. Um, or perhaps this is early sepsis, and I guess that's the thing that what most people would be worried about with the low-grade temperature, the, the mild yeah. tachycardia, uh, and the elevated, uh, elevated lactate. Um, 
but with sepsis three criteria, you know, where she's not obviously in, la- in septic shock, um, uh, although we would have to adequately volume resuscitate and um, uh, prior. Mm. So, <coughs> switch the phenylephrine off, and you might. Yeah, that's septic. true. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's very true. So, but that's spinal shock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess. So I think one of the reasons that you brought this up about sepsis is, you know, that, um, well, I guess you're probably going to go over this, is that so it's not really helpful in the diagnosis of sepsis, is it? No, no. It's just basically a marker of, of you know, production and, or clearance of lactate, which can, is caused by many different things. Yeah, and, and it's definitely not um, something to be... It's, it's a marker of severity, potentially, in a patient with sepsis, so with a diagnosis of sepsis, but it's not like a diagnostic test per se, just because the no. lactate is elevated does not mean the patient has sepsis. Yeah, um, that's the key point, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, the fever as well is interesting because, obviously, um, a, an increase in your temperature is a common occurrence uh, in labour and delivery, uh, yeah. and also with epidurals as well. Yeah. Yep, and so with the epidural... Epidural. So you're going to talk about that? Yeah. So yeah. So the um, the uh, you know hyperthermia from epidural analgesia is a known phenomena um, and complicated. And I did a bit of reading about it, but um, I, I don't think anyone really knows exactly what uh, is causing it. There's yeah. an immunomodulatory like uh, theory about what's causing it, but it's certainly a known known thing that occurs. Yeah, that's my understanding too. It's a weird phenomenon where it, was it up to twenty percent of people who have an epidural would yeah, have a yeah. low grade temperature. Yeah, exactly. And it's just something about having an epidural interferes with your um, thermal regulation mm-hmm. such that you have a low temperature. It's not because we they've all got bacterial infections. In fact, no. most of them have no infection at all. Yeah, exactly. It's related a lot to, to the physical presence of the catheter in the epidural space, right? It's not just from the analgesia from the drugs. In, Is it? In animal models, from what I remember. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll fact check that one. Yeah. <laughs> but it obviously leads to a lot of confusion because then, um, you know, women get labelled as possibly having an infection of some sort, and this might even lead to blood cultures and even antibiotics for babies and all sorts of mm-hmm. downstream effects. Yeah, exactly. And there's, a, there's an inherent difficulty in diagnosing maternal sepsis um, because of the physiological changes of pregnancy and delivery. They overlap with the SERS criteria. And I know we don't use SERS criteria anymore with sepsis 3, but um, which is good because they were hard to remember. Another list. Yep. Um, but, um, but uh, yeah, there's, it, there's an inherent difficulty with the, um, with the normal physiology of delivery. So um, we at King Eddie's have got a really nice sepsis guideline that helps us um, uh, uh, diagnose or at least uh, detect, yeah. uh, screen for, or screen consider. for, yeah. yeah. And um, and as a, you know, one of the junior registrars, what I think it's best about this form is that um, it allows me and uh, something to anchor escalation and make sure I you know speak to Declan and the senior registrar, or speak to a consultant. Um, and and say, look, I'm worried about this patient. You know, they've they've ticked certain boxes on the front of our sepsis pathway, and and it triggers that MDT um, uh, discussion. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's probably a key part of that chart, I'd say. Mm. It's linked to management principles as well, right? Yeah. So yeah. not only once you identify it, but it it has on following pages the list of the investigations and management that needs to be done. Yeah, definitely prompts you to remember, you know, core core tests that need to be ordered and um, and give some suggestions about empiric antibiotics. Um, and and our form uses some commonly used cutoffs for lactate. Um, 
So a lactate above 2 should be raise some concern and a lactate above 4 definitely should raise concern, yep. um, which has got its difficulties uh, given that we, we kind of theorise that lactate would be elevated in these women even in the absence of infection. Um, and actually, yes. yeah, doing a bit of reading around this, um, I found that... Um, some meta-analyses that showed that during pregnancy the, the traditional cutoffs can be used um, because the, um, during the pregnant state we, um, the lactate is cleared and produced in the same way in the non, in non-pregnant state but in labour and delivery specifically um, it's a little bit more grey yes. and, and there was a, 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 um, a study done in the UK only released last year by Docri et al and it's called How Should We Interpret Lactate in Labour? A Reference Study and it was published in the um, International Journal of Obstetrics and Gynaecology. Uh, a really, really great little study, actually, that um, that tried to set up some references so we can use some cutoffs in in labour. And it highlighted the difficulties that um, that come with knowing that an elevated lactate is probably a physiological thing that occurs, or it is yeah. a physiological thing that occurs in labour, and um, and that perhaps applying these traditional two and four cutoffs to um, an obstetric population. Um, doesn't apply, and they um, they found that uh, they they had one thousand two hundred and seventy nine parturients, and found that the um, the median lactate for patients that had um, had a spontaneous vaginal delivery was one point nine. So you know, approaching that two cutoff right. that, that we would yep. use, yeah, and that was just the median. You know, the interquartile range was one point three to two point five. Um, so it would be normal to have a lactate of kind of 2.3. Yeah, but the and the actual range was 0.4 to 5.4, wasn't it? Yeah, there was some really high lactates. Yeah. yeah. They used, um, they used uh, a good neonatal outcome as a surrogate marker that there was no kind of insidious process going on, um, which is, which is a, I guess, a limitation of the study. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it still shows that these high lactate numbers, you know, up to 5.4, could represent normal physiology. Yeah, because, and in summary, it's because giving birth, uh, you know, especially if you're in pain, you get activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is going to trigger your glycolysis, and then also, you know, it's a physical, you know, you know pushing and moving, it's physical muscular activity, which yeah. generates lactate as well. So yeah, and I guess we all those things. Yeah, we've all seen those studies where they, you know, take blood gas from patients with, oh, sorry, not even patients from subjects that have done, <laughs> you know, at, like athletes, you know, they run a 400 meter hurdles race and do a yeah. lactate and have astronomically high numbers. You know, yeah. so similar principles apply. Um, and uh, yeah, but I thought it was really interesting to get a get some evidence about a reference range. Um, yeah, that can it's help useful. Us. Yeah. So if we see someone who's had just had a baby and we do. A, venous gas and we see a lactate of around two or so that means nothing really yeah in isolation in isolation if they otherwise look well yeah Yeah. exactly Mm. that's reassuring isn't it Um, yeah uh, that being said you know sepsis as we know is a a significant cause of maternal morbidity and mortality so like um, it's certainly not uh, when I'm not trying to dismiss the the seriousness of diagnosing sepsis when it needs to be but um, but yeah an isolated lactate in and otherwise well-looking parturient is um, it's nice to have some evidence to say oh actually this is a normal thing mm. yeah I think the, um, yes, yesterday when you gave a talk you, know, you said that we always want something simple like a biomarker that we can just do a blood test and say this is above this so they have this 
but unfortunately it doesn't exist. No, no, yeah. if only it was that easy. Hey? Yeah. Did you come across anything that would um, talk about how quickly the lactate can be cleared? To use the athlete analogy, um, you know, we're taking the lactate half an hour after delivery, it might be high, should I expect after one hour or two hours that it's going to remain high? Yeah, I don't, think, yeah. I don't think there's some good evidence about that. And yeah, so I'd be worried if like you know, three or four hours after delivery where they've pretty much not been you know, doing anything too exciting, it was high. Yeah, because right. if they have normal liver and kidney, they should clear that lactate mm. and you know, it should go away. So yeah, I agree, Declan. It's the devil's in the detail, isn't it? Yeah. It depends on the timing. Uh, I did find this like, um, this to answer your question a little, um, uh, this is a completely different pa- uh, subject because uh, this is an athlete um, who, uh, who after 60 seconds of an all-out maximal exertional effort um, had a peak lactate of 16 um, when measured serially but by the time you know 30 minutes came along it was down to 8 and then that 60 minutes it was kind of within normal range okay so but that sounds like it takes an hour or so, so yeah. it's not super fast is it, it doesn't yeah. so it's peaked at 10 minutes there and then it's halved by about you can imagine like an athlete has pretty good clearance because they're you know they're going to have um, pretty normal physiology yeah yep there's obviously limitations applying this data yeah. to uh, an obstetric yeah, population. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, it's interesting to... I think a, a, a downward trajectory and a clinical condition that um, is reassuring, you know, that mm. that might make you less likely to pull the trigger on um, some broad-spectrum antibiotics. Great. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? There's a few more slides. Oh, yeah, there's one. Keep, keep going. So we'll talk about a biomarker, and we thought wouldn't yep. that be really nice to be able to have a, um, a you know, oh, sorry, a single um, biomarker that gave us an answer. And it doesn't exist. We wish it We wish it did. It would make our job easier. But um, uh, procalcitonin is a biomarker that's used in intensive care settings quite a lot. Um, and uh, there is some early evidence to show that maybe that could be a helpful thing. Um, uh, I found one study that showed um, in pregnancy, like with lactate, um, it can be used in the same way uh, as the, in the non-pregnant patient. Um, but again, this uh, meta-analysis said, oh, we're a bit unsure about whether you can use it to diagnose a bacterial infection in in labour. So there's yeah. there's um, there's a research question there, I'm sure. So, about. so maybe that would be a better thing to look at than lactate. Yeah, the thought yeah. being that but it hasn't been studied, to, so we don't know if it is going to be useful or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thought being it's a bit more specific for bacterial infection yep. um, as opposed to a generic uh, marker of like inflammation, like, you know, we use CRP a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the problem is, that, of course, all our pregnant women are prone or at risk of bacterial infections, aren't they? Well, yeah. And with group B strep and E. coli and all yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah, group A strep, group as, a well. strep as well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that would um, it would be great to be able to you know use a, a biomarker. I, th- I think that'd be interesting to see whether there's some studies that come out with about procalcitonin in the next few years about whether it's more specific and sensitive um, to detect sepsis, which is obviously a very important thing to do. Um, the thing that uh, I was always worried about was that, you know our our triple antibiotics for uh, empiric 
broad spectrum antibiotics include gentamicin and mm-hmm. you know, gentamicin has a list of side effects and one of the things I was worried about when I was prescribing gentamicin was like is this dose going to cause ototoxicity you know is yeah. this yep. is this one off um, uh, dose of gent going to cause some hearing impairment um, when I when you know there was no firm diagnosis of sepsis but I was really reassured to find a big study that um, looked at to uh, 25,000 people and found zero cases of ototoxicity in that in a big population. Okay. So it's really just like people getting their, you know, like long courses of it. Is exactly, that yeah. yeah. Yeah, so with a single dose of gentamicin, yeah, very unlikely to cause ototoxicity. Okay. Um, this review had various ranges, but most of the ranges were in keeping with uh, doses, sorry. Most of the doses were in keeping with the doses that we would um, we would give normally. So that was reassuring. Mm. It doesn't cause any damage to the mitochondria, does it? <laughs> no, the <laughs> mitochondria are absolutely <laughs> fine. Yeah. It does. Did um, you know there was two and a half thousand cases of acute kidney injury? Was, this, was this an observational thing, though? Yeah. Yeah. So they might have been getting that because of their infection, or exactly. Yeah. 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 And um, and you know the inherent issues with systematic reviews, meta-analyses, yeah. where you get lots of hetero- heterogeneous. Um, yeah, studies. I imagine. Well, I imagine people who are getting a dose of gentamicin are not well. They're sick. Exactly. And so a certain proportion of them are going to get like an acute kidney injury Mm. because of the illness, whatever it is. Yeah. So it's hard to know whether that's got anything to do with gentamicin. True. Yeah, absolutely true. But it was very good to, um, yeah, it was good to know that I'm not going to cause autotoxicity with my Autotoxicity definitely sounds like it's specific just to gentamicin because it's not not something that happens in other other conditions. Yeah. Um, So what's what's the take-home point about how can we use lactate here in when we're looking after obstetric patients and and gynae patients? Yeah, um, and especially in relation to how it's how we should think about it and conceptualise it in sepsis. So I think um, it's important to to know that hyperlactatemia is common in the parturient, and it's um, and it's you know something that is normal physiology about the deliver uh, about labor and delivery yep. um that it may not represent kind of hypoperfusion or shock um but yep. that um but that it's as a response to that sympathetic nervous system response um and accelerated glycolysis as a result of endogenous catecholamines um uh, the lactate map on the on Cliff Reeves website's really good um so yep. I, you know that's something to have a look at and um think about your uh, broad differentials for hyperlactatemia and then I wonder if procalcitonin in the future might be a biomarker that we can use to improve our diagnosis of sepsis in the uh, you know the postpartum patient a future research project for you Tim oh. <laughs> sounds <laughs> yeah. like a big one <laughs> yeah you've changed careers um, oh, thank you. thanks Tim for putting a lot of effort into that talk is really good. I thought you structured it really well, especially like the listening to the cases. Mm. Uh, makes us think, and I've definitely learned quite a bit. Taught me a lot. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. No, thank you. Been fun. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. to the show if you like it write a review this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the itunes menu if you're also interested please go to our website at www.obsandgynecorrectcare.org 
where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time. Crit Care Podcast would like to acknowledge the Wadjuk people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.